Welcome to the Maitripa College podcast. Maitripa College is a Tibetan Buddhist graduate school in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Interested in Buddhism and want to take your understanding deeper? Each week we feature different teachings, conversations, and highlights from our community programs and archives. We invite you to join us in listening to and learning from some of the great contemporary Buddhist minds in America today. In this week's episode, Carl Jensen, Maitripa College Master of Divinity alumnus and board certified chaplain, sat down with Kate and Andrew to share his journey of becoming a Buddhist and insight into his life as a working chaplain at Providence Hospital. We find great inspiration in Carl's commitment to compassionately serving others. Enjoy this casual conversation with Carl. But so I thought to start, I would love if you could tell us just a little bit about your your background and how you ended up coming to Maitripa College, because I know that you originally trained as a lawyer and were working as a lawyer in Minnesota, and somehow you ended up back here in the Pacific Northwest and and so on. All right. Well, it was it was a long a long path to get back to the Northwest and um, and here to Maitripa. I uh, I was a lawyer for not a long period of time, just about five years. Uh, practiced in Minneapolis and Seattle, um, and uh, I was a commercial real estate lawyer, and so I was kind of a business person, and uh, it was not for me. Um, but uh, but it was quite hard to get out of it. It was uh, I think one of the things about being a lawyer is it comes with a whole worldview. You're kind of it's it's hard to see a way out. Um, it took a bit uh, to do that. I ended up moving back to um, Seattle and uh, stopped practicing law, started climbing mountains instead. And then in time, I met my wife, who was down here in Portland, and moved down here to join her. Um, and uh, that's, what, that's what brought me down this way. We then um, ended up joining the Peace Corps and going to China and spending two years in China. And while we were there teaching uh, at a university, uh, I ended up running into Tibetan Buddhism kind of in its original setting in uh, Western Sichuan and in Tibet and, uh, and fell in love uh, with it. Uh, one of the difficulties, of course, being there was as a, somebody who was there in kind of a quasi-official capacity as a Peace Corps volunteer, I could not really talk to Tibetans without causing trouble for them. I couldn't find Buddhist teachings. Uh, there were no books or anything like that available. Um, and of course, I couldn't find a Buddhist teacher while I was there. Uh, but what I could do is I could go to Tibetan um, sites, and I, I soaked it up. I spent weeks uh, in Tibet, in central Tibet, and out in Kham and up in Amdo, uh, visiting temples, monasteries, uh, circumambulating everything I could find, um, and really, it was it was compelling. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was something that really moved me. And so, uh, after we got out of Peace Corps, uh, my wife and I had some time to travel um, before we came back to the states. And I looked in a Lonely Planet guidebook, and it said. One, one of the entries said, well, if you want to learn more about Buddhism, there's this place in Nepal called Kopan Monastery. 
and they do a November course every uh, every year, a month-long basic Buddhism course. And we thought, okay, well, let's let's give that a try. And we arranged our travel schedule so that we'd ended up in Nepal in November and went to that no November Copan course. Um, and yeah, so that was the first time really started to run into the Buddhist teachings and have a, a chance to start to explore that with teachers, with the community, and so forth. Um, still remember at, early on in the course thinking, they keep saying this word bodhicitta. I wonder, I wonder what it is. What, what are they talking about? So um, <clears throat> I really hadn't had much of an exposure to, you know, kind of FPMT and those teachings. Anyway, um, yeah, well, we were there. Lama Zopa Rinpoche came. Uh, it was my first chance to meet him. This is back in 2007. And uh, I wasn't quite ready to jump in with, uh, with both feet. Um, and it took a few more, a couple more years of kind of mulling it over. Uh, my wife Heather and I, we kind of, we, uh, we took on board a lot of the ideas and, and tried to start to integrate them. Um, into into our our life, uh, but it took a while more of discernment before we knew we were uh, ready to be full on Buddhists. And uh, a couple of years later, I was teaching in Japan uh, and had a bit of a health scare uh, while I was there. And uh, well, in the, in the midst of that, realized how important it was to me. I really wanted to study the Dharma. And I really wanted to turn my attention to practice. About at that time, too, I'd heard of Maitripa College. Um, well, actually, I'd heard of Maitripa College back at Copan. I had a roommate from France. And he, he, when I was talking to him once, he said to me, Oh, you're from Portland, Oregon. You're so lucky. There's this amazing teacher who just started this thing called Maitripa Institute uh, in Portland. And, uh, and this student had been going to Young Sri Rinpoche's teachings at Institute Vajrayogini in France during the summers. And so there was that connection, kind of planted that seed in my head. I thought, yeah, maybe yeah, maybe in a future life I'll have the, the karma to get to go there. Um, but a few years later, when I had this um, health scare in Japan, I, um, my tripa was really, it, that, was, that was what came to mind as a place to study. And so when I wrapped up my time in Japan, came back and I'd uh, applied to my tripa sight unseen and uh, walked in here on my first day of classes. That's wow. how I got here. So you came without a visit? You yeah, no, no visit, no nothing. Um, had you met Rupeshe yet or no, 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 I hadn't, I hadn't met anybody. All I'd done is seen the, seen the, the website, um, sent in my stuff. But I, I knew that this is, you know, I at least wanted to give it, give it a try yeah. and, and see see what would come of it. And, um, so what year did you start here? Though? I started here in 2010. 2010. Mm -hmm. okay. Fall of 2010. Another question I have is why did you decide to do the Master of Divinity, Master of Divinity degree and the chaplaincy track within that as opposed to doing the Master of Arts and Buddhist Studies? Right. So when I started here, um, when I applied, there was only the MA program. Um, oh. And then the MDiv program was announced, I think, 
in the inter while I was while I was getting ready to arrive or, or or something like that. And at the time, they were both forty-two credit classes or forty-two credit programs. Um, and I remember I was kind of I was looking between the two, kind of weighing the differences. Once once there was a an MDiv program and. The, in the learning outcomes, there was the what caught me is in the in the divinity degree learning outcomes. It was the idea of a person being able to articulate a personal theology, and that caught me because I'm like that that would be really nice. I would like to be able to do that. I don't think I can do that, but I would love to be able to do that. So yeah, so, so but but it was that that idea of being able to articulate a personal. Theology that that just really that really caught me. There is somehow that that little bit of a personal hook. It wasn't just learning about the the religion or about the it wasn't just learning about it. I mean, but it was really that really made it clear to kind of get into it and gain. Yeah. So then, why chaplaincy in particular? What made you decide to want to do that professionally with your MDiv degree? Yeah, I didn't really know what to. What, what to do. I mean, I, I came to my treatment not knowing what exactly what I was going to do with it. Chaplaincy certainly wasn't um, something I was thinking of. But what changed things was um, in a class here, we had, um, they invited one of the local CPE, clinical pastoral education supervisors, to come talk to, um, to our class. I think it was one of the service classes, nodal services classes. And um, the supervisor who came and talked, um, it, it really, what she was talking about, about the process of clinical pastoral education, I found it really compelling, the way a person works on themselves, looks at what they're bringing to, um, to chaplaincy or to a patient encounter, and also the way that what chaplains do is look for uh, the patient's own spiritual resources and work with those. I mean, I, I, I learned both a lot about chaplaincy and about the process of becoming a chaplain in that meeting. Um, and I remember thinking, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if I want to be a chaplain, but I think I want to do this training. Um, and that, that person uh, ended up become, be, becoming my supervisor um, in the program I went through. Uh, she's a colleague still. So, at Providence? At Providence, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we work together closely, and I, that's something I really appreciate. Yeah. So, Carl, when you were in those parts of Tibet, how did you even know to, like, circumambulate? Because that was your first real encounter. Yeah, Tibet, uh, yeah you know, the first, first place I went was uh, Shiaha, or Labrang, up in Amdo, and... Um, and when I was there, I mean, it was very clear that circumambulating is what people did. I mean, because okay. it's a bit a big monastery there, prayer wheels all around the outside, and uh, it was a really kind, quite a nice thing to be, kind of be welcomed by, you know, many of the Tibetans who were doing who were circumambulating. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, just to kind of engage with it, not kind of sheepishly as a oh I'm doing a tourist thing, but really try to just try to engage in it and to really. Did you struggle with it all? Like, were you pretty 
seriously atheist or oh, anything oh, before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest struggle was actually, it's like, I'm not a religious person. I'm not even a spirit. I'm not a spiritual person. I don't think I'm okay with this. I don't like those people. And, uh, and so this was, yeah, this was that. While I was, while I was there in, in China, I was wrestling with this. Because I'd had these experiences of just really being moved in ways that I didn't understand um, by these places that I felt com were really compelling. Somewhere that I didn't go over there with any interest in Buddhism or Tibet or anything like that. So it was really quite a surprise. And, uh, you know, I ended up reading a book my mom had sent me. It was, you know, that sweet little book, The Life of Pi, right? And I read that. And I got to the bit in it where it said, towards the end, where the narrator asks, you know, well, wh well what do you want? Do you want, you know, just the bare, unleavened reality or something, or, or, or something else, you know, or, or something that's a better story? And, uh, and for me, I'm like, oh, wow. Th that was kind of that moment. I'm like, oh, you know, Buddhism is a better story. Yeah. And... Let's give let's give that a try, and that that was kind of what gave me the okay to start to engage in something that huh. like wouldn't have been uh. wouldn't have been okay you know wouldn't have been okay, and then once one, once I gave myself that okay oh then it was fantastic right because then it was just like phew, I could just go all, all in as much as I could. It's interesting that you were so attracted to the devotional aspect of it, coming from an atheist or non-religious background. Yeah, I, I liked I liked the practice bit of it. I loved I loved <laughs> I loved making offerings and all the you know I I didn't I didn't walk around with a bag of yak butter and add it to lamps, but I did. <laughs> I loved just making offerings to statues. My favorite part is the fact that you can make change, right? If you all you have is a five, jiao note, you put it in, you take four back out as change, and then you go to the. I mean, it's fantastic. Like this is how offering plates should be. But uh, just something about it. I mean, these were there. There, there really weren't any equivalents in in the you know the religious traditions I knew of. Uh, growing up, I grew up nominally uh, in a Protestant family. We really family really didn't go to church. I, not people weren't big believers, um, and certainly I think in a lot of Protestant traditions, there's not a lot of ritual in the same in the same way but these were things that i could do with my body i mean to be able to walk around what what, what first brought me in was walking cora around let's say around a monastery um which was great because it was it was also a, an amazing hike with like buddhist you're walking around the monastery on a trail and there's some small shrines and things like that as you circle and it was it was that was fantastic um, yeah. So, what is the role of your Buddhist practice in your day-to-day -day life now, and how does that support your work as a chaplain? Yeah, I, I think having a practice or knowing how to knowing how to tap into what the practice connects me to um, is what's is what's the most important thing to do uh, for me. One of the things that I really miss about my time as a Maitripa student was being able to engage so much in practice at the same time as study. Now that I'm working, I don't know what it is about work, but just work is 
it's about all I can do. And so I don't have the time and energy to put into practice like I used to. Um, what I do find helpful is going on, on retreat when possible. Um, and just finding uh, some shortcuts or other short, quick ways to kind of tap in, tap into my practice even when I don't have a chance to do it in kind of its full aspect. Um, whether it's uh, just taking the time to say, to recite a few Buddhist prayers at the time when the rest of my department is, is offering Christian prayers together. Um, and to be able to do them in Tibetan, um, prayers, praises, mandala offering, refuge in bodhicitta, to be able to do those is just kind of a, um, a, short, a short daily practice that kind of reminds me of what I'm bringing to the day's work, you know, what I aspire to, what I'm connected to, um, and things like that. Yeah. Are you able to see the work that you're doing as practice when you're with people? I do. I, I, yeah, um, yeah. That's that's that that's what I aspire to. I often see it as work, but but sometimes when it's when it's good, you know, when things go well, then it's like, oh yeah, that this is what it's all about, and this and 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 it does have that that pra that practice aspect. Um, so at it, so I'd say yes, at its best, I do. Um, but not I, I I still struggle with making all of it practice. You know, uh, administrative things are hard to make practice <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, I don't have a daily sitting meditation practice at this point because I, I don't have the energy for it. You know, it's, it's something that I that I regret or that I you know I'm, I can be, I'm saddened at about at times is to end up doing this work. Um, my practice has suffered. And uh, uh, it's, I mean, it's very valuable work, but it, d it does mean that my, um, my practice looks different than it used to. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of what your day is like? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm lucky I have a day shift job, so I, and it's a, it's a normal schedule job, so it's, it's pretty predictable. I work uh, from 8 to 4.30, uh, Monday through Friday. I am the chaplain uh, for the inpatient oncology floor, uh, so that's that's my practice, and as my boss would say, that's my parish. I mean, I, 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 I'm there on the seventh floor of the Providence, um, we call it the Cancer Tower, uh, and it's the patients and the family and the staff. That's those are the those are the people that I that I work with every day. So I go in at eight o'clock or so and um, and meet with the the department. We have a departmental meeting at the beginning and end of every shift. So um, at eight o'clock in the morning, four p.m. and then at midnight. But although I'm not there for that one, and we bring the whole department together. And uh, at that time, we do a couple things. One is there's always time for um, prayer or reflection, and so. That's um, that might be where I do my personal my personal practice using that time uh, when other people are maybe engaging in something more out loud, and uh, 
but we meet to talk about the patients uh, that, that we all have an interest in, in, in say comfort care patients who are patients you know, towards the end of life on comfort measures or kind of hospice type measures even though they're still in the hospital. Uh, we'll talk about really kind of any ongoing situations if there's say uh, um, something going on in the, in the ICU or the critical care unit that we need to be aware of that uh, with family members or uh, maybe some procedures going to be done. So we get a, a sense of what the day looks like. And then after that, uh, I'm pretty much on my own till the end of the day. So I go up to my floor, um, the seventh floor, and I check in with the caregivers there, the nurses. Um, at a couple hours into the day at 10, we will have an interdiscipli interdisciplinary meeting of all the nurses and all the caregivers up on that floor, the social worker, physical therapy, occupational therapy, nutrition, that whole team. We get together and we discuss each patient uh, briefly, one by one, um, to report on any, so that the nurses can report on any concerns that, that might be going on. That's often where I get referrals for visits to patients or family members. Say if somebody has a new diagnosis of cancer, uh, if somebody's at the point where they're going to start to transition their goals of care, maybe from curative measures to palliative measures, uh, if some person or family has some kind of inadequate coping skills and there are things going on, if somebody has a spiritual practice that's very important to them so that, say, prayer or scripture reading is a big part of their, their coping with their illness, um, I might get a referral for that to give... Um, I also, at, at that meeting, I give a reflection every day, um, and uh, that's, that's been one of the real surprises uh, in my job is how much I enjoy that and how well-received it is. Because I'm of the theory, or the, my, my theory is that everyone has a spirituality that they're bringing, especially if people, if they're called to work in healthcare as nurses, as oncology nurses, they are dealing with some of the hardest things anyone could encounter on a on a daily basis. Something's going on for them. They're all very smart people with caring hearts who are doing this hard work. So given that, what are some reflections that I can find to kind of offer something that acknowledges everything that they bring to the work? It acknowledges the difficulty of the work, the sacredness of the work. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm. I'm probably the only person on the interdisciplinary team who can use that word sacred. Nobody else can. We're, everyone's doing sacred work, and I'm the only one who can name it. So it's, that's my job, right, to call, to name that and help people recognize that what they're doing is something really amazing. You know, it's not easy. It calls upon all of them, you know, all of their, all of the parts of their humanity and their spirit um, to do that work. But... Um, but it's such meaningful work, such important work, and um, that type of thing. So that's that's what I try to call up, and 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 you know. And so, my I also recognize that for a lot of people, chaplain reflections, the chaplain reflections, and things like that that they've received over the course of their time working, have may, perhaps haven't spoken to them. If they don't have a Christian spirituality, a lot of the, a lot of the things that are offered often miss people. So I truly try to bring things from secular sources, or from 
I, I love Buddhist sources, but they aren't explicitly Buddhist, but there's so many great, great um, people who have quotes or um, things that I can offer. It's the Jack Cornfields and the Pema Chidrons and, um, no, and on and on. But uh, um, th those are the types of things that I, I try to bring. Yeah. It's always really nice at the end of that reflection when somebody will ask me, can I have a copy of that? You know, it's really nice to, to yeah. offer something that feels useful. Maitripa College is a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangtze Rinpoche in 2005. We offer two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity, as well as Classical Tibetan Language Studies. Founded upon three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, the Maitripa College curriculum combines Western academic, contemplative learning, and traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, our graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West as scholar practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators, and more. We invite you to join us and make your practice your life. That aspect of bringing the sacredness to the workers is really beautiful. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. In, for, for me, the really supporting staff is, that's, that's the heart of the work for me in two ways. One, because they, as people who are doing this every day, need that support, especially if they don't have a, a, a spiritual tradition that they strongly draw upon, and most of them don't. Um, the other is that the support that I give them ends up going to every patient that they see, right? I mean, it's like, I, 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 in a sense, I'm by trying to open things and create some space for them, they are going to end up creating that space for everyone they run into, all their patients, and they can, they can, end, up doing, they can end up doing spiritual care, whether they know it or not. Um, and they do do wonderful spiritual care, even though they don't call it that. Um, yeah, I was very touched. I was asked to lead a meditation retreat for some of the oncology nurses um, a month or two ago. And some of the nurses, or one of the nurses in particular, realized this is something people would be interested in. She figured out how to get some funding for it and had a dozen, a dozen nurses on their day off spent the day met doing, some, doing a meditation retreat and, and things like that. It was nice. It was, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so that gets me to about 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so what percentage of your time is actually working with people versus administrative things? Yeah, I'd say about 75% is working with, with either staff or patients, but it's probably 50-50 between staff and patients. Um, and part of the reason is because the staff, you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking about the staff, it, it really extends not just to the nurses who we often think about, but also... Um, you know, the, the dietary workers who are bringing meals in, the housekeeping, um, transportation, and, and so on. All of these people who, who and they build relationships with patients. And, um, and then when, especially on a floor such as mine, you know, patients die, um, 
there's not there's not a lot of support for somebody who's um, you know been cleaning their room for the last three weeks and knows them and the thing is that these are people who I mean patients love patients love these these workers and the workers love the patients I mean it's the relationships that they um, create are great but there, I think there can be a lot of un unacknowledged grief or dis disenfranchised grief you know if it could, because it, sometimes it doesn't feel maybe a person doesn't feel like they can mourn the patients and so just keeping keeping an eye on that and ch checking in with people and offering support there as well so is a big part of it yeah. I've imagined that being in a hospital setting, that the constant reminder of suffering and impermanence would be helpful for practice, but it sounds like you've struggled some with maintaining your practice. I'm sort of surprised about that. Yeah, yeah. For me, I think it's mostly time and energy. The reminders of suffering are, are um, probably more overwhelming than anything else. I mean, it's, it, and especially unacknowledged suffering. I think that's one of the hardest things um, to kind of square. Um, while we as Buddhists may want to remember death every day, almost everybody you meet doesn't want to remember death every day. And it's not my job to make them remember death every day. That's the thing. Um, so while I am, <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that's, that's not always where I can be. I mean, there's people cope with, people cope with illness and, and, and loss in so many different ways. Um, the environment is one in which there is, there just is a lot of suffering, the suffering of illness, the suffering of uncertainty, the suffering of not being able to speak freely about what's going on. Um, there's a culture, I, I think, like in, in everything, there's a culture around what is said and what isn't said and how it's said. And um, in the, in the culture around cancer is very much fighting cancer, that type of thing. Um, doesn't I, I, I sometimes I'm concerned that it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for people whose fight isn't going so well you know where how do you speak about that and, and even if somebody has some ambivalence about fighting how do you how do you speak about that um, I think with the chaplain is or speak when I have a chance to talk with them that's a good time for people to to kind of open up some of the ambivalence that they might have but the the larger culture doesn't doesn't really um, support that too much. Yeah. So for me, you know, for, for uh, your question is really good. I mean, for me, it's a much larger, where the question becomes larger. It's like, oh my goodness, when people having life-changing illnesses is normalized. So you think that's, I mean, that's in many ways, especially on the floor where I am, we're seeing every, every person is a worst case scenario. Every single person, a person who's been healthy, and then all of a sudden, a few pains, they come in, they have pancreatic cancer, and they have, you know, a three to six week prognosis. Um, that's, it's, it's hard, hard yeah, to make sense of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. Well, I think Buddhism has amazing tools for for engaging with these things. But for me, that's kind of where, where things are. I mean, not, as I've been doing this for three years now, I'm still in the middle of figuring it out. I certainly don't have it figured out. But those are the questions that tend to come up for me um, are what are we to do in the midst of this? This is, this is 
this is where it goes. This is where things end. And in light of that, then what? And how does our practice serve us? So, yeah, I don't have the answers, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just in the middle of it. So, yeah. Have you been surprised by people in terms of their reactions or their strength? That's a good question. Have I been surprised by people? Um, you know, I actually, I guess, you know, I've been surprised surprised by how pe few people actually really bring a strong uh, spiritual approach to the end of their life. I mean, and, and I think it's, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's because of the type of illnesses that people have that I mainly meet are ones where they have, um, they're, they're, they often have to be sedated enough that, you know, um, but a lot, a lot of being with people at the end of life hasn't been like I expected it would be. And people often aren't as um, clear as I would have thought. Um, there's a lot of people have, not people, I think we all, we all do. Um, you know, I've, I've been, yeah, I've been surprised by how few people really seem prepared for their, for their own death or the death of a loved one. Um, and it's always lovely when I run into somebody who is, who's really, who's done the work and is, is really ready to engage with what's going to happen. Um, are there things that you see the people who are able to kind of quote unquote die well, are there, is there something similar that you see between those different individuals, or mm -hmm. is it just luck, or? Mm -hmm. Do they have spiritual practices, or what is it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I see, the, I'll tell you, but at this point, I don't know what it really looks like to die well. I don't have, a, I don't have, like, there's no one-size-fits-all fit all way for what dying, dying well looks like to me. I think people... I think some people have a way that they need to die. Some people need to do things the hard way mm. uh, for whatever reason. There was one gentleman, um, he had a stomach cancer and he also had, he had a, boy, a two year old daughter mm. and this, he, was, he was a tough guy, a lovely man, but a very tough man, stoic. And he was gonna do it the hard way because I, I think that he needed his daughter to know. He, I think he knew he wasn't going to be around for her whole life, but he needed her to know that he'd done everything he could until the very last, until his very last breath, right? And it was terrible from one sense, right? The nurses had a terrible time with it because they had to be witness to his suffering, and they saw this as unnecessary suffering, which... What is it like him having to be resuscitated? No, no, not, not that, but just in a lot of pain. Okay. Not, and continuing with um, active treatment, say, even at that point, just receiving intravenous food and water okay. was, too, was very hard for his body. 
but he felt like he needed to do that. He couldn't, he couldn't say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And so, um, so that, that was one, that was one, it's, with all the suffering he went through it, it's hard to say that he died well. But I do believe that he, that he died in the way that he needed to. And, and I, I'm so grateful that he had the, the space to do it, the room to do it, um, that he was able, able to do that. And I often see the chaplain's role in, in these types of situations is when people exercise their autonomy in ways that are hard for other people, whether it's their family members or whether the care team, to understand or make meaning of, um, we're there to help, to help them make some meaning of it, even if it's just helping them understand that this is, this is in the end, that person's own journey, the patient's own journey, and that, that we can support them even when we don't agree with, with the way they're doing it. Yeah, a, a lot of what chaplains do is we try to bring a patient in their fullness, bring a patient in their fullness to the eyes of the rest of the care team. I think chaplains, we have the time, we have more time than other disciplines do, um, or, or the way we schedule things gives us more time to fully talk with a person and um, get, to, get to know what's important to them, what's meaningful, and then part of our job as chaplains is to lift that up and bring that to the attention of the care team, especially in ways where it might uh, affect the plan of care. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's definitely that aspect. Uh, one place where, where I always enjoy being able to uh, be of help is when we have Buddhist patients in the hospital. Uh, who die and their families want to observe the traditional, uh, some time for the traditional prayers and practices. And so I've had patients who, families who've requested up to 24 hours for the body to stay undisturbed in a hospital room. And usually about eight hours is sufficient, but to create the space and maybe have uh, monks or nuns from their temple come in and say prayers and practices. For me, I, I, when I have a chance to support them in that, I am so happy, you know, to be able to explain to the rest of the team what's going on, why they're doing it, and that this is, that if, and, and, and to let them know, if you have any questions, ask me, you know, I'm happy to do that. And to go to the family and to let them know that we're so happy to accommodate their practices. And if they have any questions, let me know. We're not in any hurry. And just create that space for people to be able to engage in those practices. It's yeah. a lovely thing. Have there ever been any patients that you just were not the right chaplain for? Yeah, that does happen. Um, I think that chaplaincy in general, uh, while it strives to be interfaith, it, there's a real, um, there can be, I mean, it came, it came out of Christian traditions, and so there can be kind of a Christian bias. They're aware of that, but I think often the idea of being inclusive is, I think there's still a strong theistic bias. You know, if, if God's not involved, it's hard for people, it's hard for people to talk about spirituality outside of God, even a lot of chaplains. They tend to think if you say something like Holy Spirit or the universe, that it, that it solves the problem, but I don't. I don't think it solves the problem. 
Um, so sometimes I'm not the right chaplain. The, what the, where this comes up for Buddhist chaplains a bit is when patients or patients' families, whether they are able to articulate it well or not, what they really want is they want a fellow believer to sit in the room with them, you know? Um, that's a problem because not all, not all chaplains are Christian. And I think often there's so many ideas that chaplain means a, Christ, a Christian minister who's at the hospital, um, that for a Buddhist chaplain, that can be hard to engage with. Um, how do I, for me, the question is, how do I um, ethically and with integrity engage with this family um, or patient if what they're looking for is something that I can't provide? They're, looking, they're not looking for what I can do or say. They're looking for who I am. Mm -hmm. And to, to, to what extent do, um, to what extent do, do I need to self-disclose either for them or for myself is always a tough question. Yeah. I tend not to self-disclose my own Buddhist uh, background, my, my Buddhist connection, my, my Buddhist practice, my Buddhist identity. That's the word I'm looking for. I tend not to self-disclose unless it's really in the patient's best interest in some way. And it could either be because they have a distrust of chaplains because they think I'm going to come in and try to convert them to Christianity, in which case it's wonderful to be able to say, oh, don't worry, I'm a Buddhist. And they're like, oh, that's <laughs> the coolest thing ever. And in fact, a lot of the nurses on my floor will... will you know, they'll be like, oh, you should talk to our chaplain. And then the patient will be like, oh, I don't want to talk to a chaplain. I'm not. They're like, oh, he's Buddhist. It's okay. And they're like, oh, okay, I'll talk to the chaplain. It's awesome. It's like this, this great entree. But, uh, um, but sometimes it's a patient, the patient of the family. I mean, they really want to have a Christian in there. That's important to them. I'm not the right person. Usually I'm paired up. I, I usually work with a student who's also on my oncology floor. Uh, and most times that student is has a Christian background, and so it's very easy for me to just ask them to stop by. It's hard though, right? It's always hard to be to feel rejected. And uh, but uh, will you pray with people like a Christian prayer? Yeah, yeah, I, pr I, I, I offer prayers all the time. Yeah, Christian prayers. I, you know, I don't know if I'm doing them right. I, maybe I'm not doing them exactly like they'd like me to do them. The patient. But um, but what I do is I lift up the concerns that they have that that we've talked about during during our um, during our conversation, and I lift I lift up those concerns in the spiritual language that they're used to using that speaks to them. Um, I do think it's a powerful thing for people to be prayed for when that's part of their tradition and. I don't feel like I can not offer that just because they have the karma to have a Buddhist chaplain in the room with them. And I'm okay with that too because, you know, there's one, there's one expression of, of a Buddhist power and aspiration. It's like to liberate all beings by whatever means are appropriate to them. And that speaks so strongly to me. It's like whatever means are appropriate to them. If they're a Christian, my job isn't to make them a Buddhist. My job is to help them develop spiritually, whatever that looks like, um, in the hopes that, that that spiritual development will be movement towards liberation and be, be
be a positive thing for them. Before, as a Buddhist, I wasn't a praying person, but to be to be it's it's I truly believe to be able to offer up a prayer for a person is a it's a it's a powerful thing. Um, you know, after after a conversation with another person who's in, who's suffering, who's who's having a hard time, to be able to offer some words that really shows them, I see you, I've seen you, I've heard you, and and I I care, and um, and to be able to bring some hope as well into that, you know, um, is I don't know, it's something that it's. It's a. It's something I never, ever would have thought that I'd enjoy doing, and uh, and yet it's not something that's problematic. How do you not burn out doing the work that you're doing? That's a good question. I mean, that's like I don't know. <laughs> um, retreat has been a a big, a big thing. Having a chance to go on retreat, and. Um, but how does retreat help? Because it reconnects me to. It reconnects me to what's going on. Going going on retreat is wonderful because it's an immersion in our tradition, not in translation. Right? I'm always I always feel like I'm working in translation. But when I can go, and the holy images are ones that I connect with, and the community is one where they. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't have to work in translation. Um, I think, at least in my department, um, I feel fortunate that we have a department that chaplains take good care of each other. I mean, we have a we have a big department. We have maybe a dozen chaplains and five residents at any one at one, any one time. So when we get together for meetings, we may have fifteen to twenty people in the room. Um, and it's really a remarkable collection of people and wonderful people to spend time with and very supportive. I mean, I think chaplains know what other chaplains face and what, what they're doing on a, on a daily basis. We, we find each other to debrief a lot um, when we have particularly difficult encounters or a particularly difficult situation, we'll often share it with each other. Um, in, you know, in confidence, uh, because these things are often too much to carry on our own. Um, yeah, and so, you know, mo most people in the healthcare environment are are running, 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 very busy and scheduled. Chaplains work hard, but we don't have the same time pressures that other people do, and I think it does give the time for downtime. Um, or checking in with other people. Are there any other Buddhist chaplains that you work with? I, ha I have the great pleasure to work with another Maitripa graduate, Julie Dreyer, at, my, at, uh, at Providence. Uh, and as well, we have another uh, Buddhist, uh, one of our residents is Buddhist. So there's a few other people. What do you love the most about the work that you do? Uh, what, you know, what I love the most is the relationships that I develop with uh, the people that I work with, whether um, it was, well, my, the, the peer group that I came through CPE with, clinical pastoral education, 
Uh, we had a small group. There were only three of us for most of it. Um, but those people know my soul, if I can use that word as a Buddhist. Okay. Uh, but they know my soul, and I know so much about them. Uh, it's amazing to have people like that as colleagues or as resources um, who know me that, that well and are able to really offer advice or a word um, that, can, that can be very helpful. Was that education pretty transformative for you, the clinical pastoral education? It was. It was. It was. Um, it, CPE is, is amazing. I think everyone should do it. I, uh, it gives us, gives the, per the person who's going through it um, really has a chance to take a look at themselves and all, all of the things that they're bringing with them, whether it's conscious or not, right? And um, to work in a group and of, uh, give feedback to each other and to really do that type of group learning and for me to learn to rely on a, rely on a group, it really it got it. It helped um, me be less individualistic and really work um, better together. Really open. It's it's it, it is a place where the Buddhist practice. I used my Buddhist practice in CPE a whole lot, um, just to to do the work of trying to open to others, to open to the group, to use the group. So, cool. yeah. Carl, thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Please so edit it and make me look good. And me too, Andrew. <laughs> Give me that British accent. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Maitripa College podcast. If you would like to learn more about Maitripa College, please visit our website at maitripa.org. M-A-I-T-R-I-P-A dot o-r-g this podcast was produced by kate mcdonald andrew hughes alfredo pinayero and me your host tiffany blumenthal